Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Our current series is called Hidden Angels. The premise behind this series is to highlight certain people in our congregation who have done amazing things for other people. I hope you enjoy. Our first lesson is from Jeremiah. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a boy. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy, to overthrow, to plant. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading is Mark 10, 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms laid his hands on them, and blessed them. The word of the Lord. So we are doing our sermon series, Hidden Angels, and actually we only have two sermons left in this series, including today. Next week will be the last one, and then we're in the record books, and we move on to something else, right? So the way this sermon series works, if you haven't been here, is that we are lifting up people from our congregation who have done amazing things for others. And so each week we begin with a pre-taped interview, and that interview lays the foundation for what we're going to be talking about, and we look at it from a social, cultural, spiritual perspective. And then from there, we ask, how does God expect us to live differently as a result of this information? So we're going to turn to our interview. Does that sound good? All right. Hi, I'm Katie Marr, and we've been members of the church for 15 years. Hi, I'm Kelly Marr, and I've been a member of the church ever since I was born. Okay, so we um, are involved with this organization called Lydia Home, and, um, and they have this the area of Lydia Home that's called Safe Families, and it's temporary foster care. It's where families in crisis can go, and then their kids can be placed with the Safe Family. So, um, like, it might be a single mom who is, needs to go into drug rehab, and there's a, like a seven-day drug rehab program and then her kids will get placed with the same family. Or they, a mom might be homeless and it's her opportunity to get a job. Um, so it's definitely, it's an organization that's near and dear to our heart. Because like, our, like my family growing up, we had a lot of love, we had a great support system. But there are so many people that don't have that 
And so this is based, so what we're doing is just providing that support system for somebody who, that, who couldn't have it. Well, these two little, two little boys, their names are Carlos and Brian, had a big impact on our family. And um, I got a call on a Wednesday night, it was about like eight or nine o'clock, saying that there was two boys, that, two Spanish-speaking boys that needed a home. It was a situation where they're living with their mom in North Carolina, and the dad brought them to um, Chicago. And the dad was living with them, in, in, living in, out of their car. And so um, it's kind of the same situation where the dad would go to work at night, leave the boys in the car. And, um, and so anyway, so then go ahead and tell your story about like and how. And so the little boy kept wetting his bed. And so my mom had to like keep finding clothes for him to wear. And so we were looking through one of the kids' backpacks just to see if they had anything else. And my mom found this reading log where one of the kids had to read to the parent each night. And the reading log was filled out with the parent's signature on it. So you could tell that they really loved the kids, but they just couldn't like fend for the kids and themselves. And let me tell you a little um, background story. For the majority of the parents that we dealt with, or the kids that we've had, it's been from a single mom who um, was raised in foster care. So the mother hasn't had the experience of being loved. And so then they have these kids and then the, the children aren't being loved. So I just felt, I always feel like it's such a vicious cycle. So if we can just love these kids, we can just love them and we can not judge them and um, just help them feel confident in life. So uh, I think that's one of my favorite things about Lydia Home is that you can do just what you are interested in and what you're able in doing. And there's no like feeling of like, oh, I should be doing so much more. You're like they, they love you for what you're willing to bring. I think it's important just so we know that it's okay to love, to love people that's not in our family. And it's okay to like show emotion and like not care the race or color of like their skin or like what they represent and so it's cool to know that just like we can help anyone in any situation that really needs help. You know, Katie, they usually come to this service. They're not here today. But if you see them, say thank you for their willingness to be interviewed. I actually heard about the Marr family and their involvement with Lydia Home when I first got to this church because Katie was on the committee that brought me here. And so she told me a lot about her involvement with that. And I was really kind of blown away by it because I feel like so many people wouldn't be willing to be inconvenienced by that. And, you know, I kind of said that. To, I used the word inconvenience, and they said, oh, it's not an inconvenience at all. We love doing it. But it is hard, I think, for a lot of people to imagine, you know, putting themselves out in that way. But they're willing to open their home and be there for these kids who just need a little bit of normalcy while their parents are going through a tough time. And I have to say that I often, when I think about fostering a child, I used to think about, about it very functionally, right? You have this kid who needs a place to stay for a little while, and you're taking them in and giving them a place to stay. But I've recently come to understand it in a very different light. And that is that when you are going through a really adverse situation, like Carlos and Brian, the, the kids who they're talking to. That situation does not just happen to you when you're a kid. It follows you 
through your entire life. And you can end up creating a cycle of poverty. And this is something you heard Katie refer to in the interview. And there's actually studies to back this up. There was a big study that just came out in 2015 from the Urban Institute, and it was a very comprehensive study. It followed children from ages birth all the way through 17, 18 technically is when you're adults. So they followed you all the way through. And I want to give you some of the highlights from that study. So one of the first highlights that they talk about is that the future achievement of children who are persistently poor is directly related to the amount of time that they spend in poverty. So if you are in a situation where you are classified as persistently poor, and let's define that because I think that's really important. Somebody who is persistently poor, that means you spent more than half of your childhood in poverty. So childhood is zero to basically 18, right? So more than half of your childhood, that is you are persistently poor. And if you are in that situation, you are 30% less likely to graduate from high school, and you are 47% less likely to enroll in college. Now, these educational benchmarkers are important for us to understand because when you live in persistent poverty, one thing they talk about is how your parental education the parental education, so the education of your parents, that is a big determiner of whether or not you are going to have academic achievement in your life if you grow up persistently poor. So to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, what I mean is, is that it's hard for you when you are persistently poor to exceed the achievements of your parents. If your parents did not graduate from high school and you are persistently poor, it is very likely that you will not graduate from high school. Now, there's a lot of factors involved in why this happens, but perhaps one of the most important is the inconsistency of life when you don't have resources. So one of the big inconsistencies that you see is housing. So one of the statistics they brought up in this that just blew my mind is they said that if you end up having to move three or more times for negative reasons. If you are persistently poor, you have to move three or four times for negative reasons. And by negative reasons, what I mean is you lose your job, right? And you, don't, you can't find another one, so you have to leave or you get evicted from your housing. If you have to leave under those circumstances, then you are 15% less likely to graduate from high school. You are 36% less likely to enroll in college and 68% less likely to complete a four-year degree. Compared with, and this is the important thing, you're not comparing children who don't have resources with children who do have resources. The comparison is with persistently poor children who never move. So that's the difference. You have two children who are living in poverty, right? Same thing, except one moves, one doesn't. That's the statistics between the ones who move and the ones who don't. That just shows you how much harder it is to get by. And so what that says is that if you start off in those situations, that it's very hard to become financially stable as an adult. In fact, what they say is, is that you are 37% more likely to end up in a situation where you are not able to find a stable income in early adulthood. If you grow up in persistent poverty, you are more likely to end up being able to have less, you're not gonna be consistently employed, and of course, if you end up having children, what does that mean? That your children are gonna be in the same cycle that you grew up in. Now, all of this to say, that when you grow up in poverty, and this is not shocking, I think, to anybody in here, when you grow up in poverty, what does that mean? It means that you're not getting the best start 
at life. And one of the other things they brought out in this study, which was really interesting to me, is that even short amounts of time spent in poverty, short amounts of time can actually sabotage a child's future. And this is why it is so rare for people who grow up in poverty to really be able to turn it around and come out of it. But the fact that it is rare does not mean that it is impossible. And in fact, I'm sure everybody in here has met someone who grew up in those circumstances at some point in time, and they were able to turn it around. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, is what does it take to turn it around? What does it take to rise above your circumstances, particularly when you begin living in poverty? So to explain this to you, or to start talking about this, I want to tell you a story of a friend of mine back in Pennsylvania. So my friend's name was Joey, and he grew up very much in the circumstances we just saw all the statistics about. He was raised by his mom. His dad wasn't around, and he had two younger sisters, so it was the three of them. And his mother was always getting hired and getting fired. So she worked for a couple months at a job. She'd lose the job. Then she'd find another job. Sometimes they'd have to move. Sometimes they wouldn't. But it was that inconsistency we talked about where he was always having to move from one place to the next. Now, one thing that his mom would do is that she would hook up with these guys because this is a way that she could get extra income. And one of the person, a person who she eventually hooked up with, she he became her boyfriend, was a drug dealer. And this drug dealer was really bad news. He was not only physically abusive to Joey and his sisters, but also sexually abusive towards them. And in his own words, at this point in time, he said, my life during that period was just a living hell. It was horrible. It was horrible. Now, if you met Joey, though, today, like if he was in this room, you'd have no idea that that's what he went through. You'd have no concept of it. He's just a regular guy. He's married. He has three children. Uh, he's got his own home. He works a stable job. Like, he's doing well for himself. You would have no concept that any of that stuff happened to him. And as we got to know each other better, I asked him at one point, I said, how'd you do this? Like, how'd you start with nothing and then build your way up to be able to overcome? And so as he talked about this, we kind of came to, he said, you know, well, the truth is, is that Every so often, my one reprieve from the horribleness of my childhood was that I had this opportunity to go and visit my uncle's house. Now, his uncle was just a normal guy, right? Worked a normal job, had his own home. And when he would go over there to his uncle's house, his uncle would treat him with respect, love, kindness. You know, he'd take him out fishing. He'd, he'd take him out to throw a ball around. He'd talk to him, you know, normal stuff that kids want to do. But most importantly... What his uncle did for him is that he exposed Joey to a different way of looking at the world. He gave him a sense of how his life could be different. You see, most kids, when they're looking at the world, they can't imagine anybody living differently than themselves. It's very hard for them to imagine a world different than how they live. I'll give you an example. When I was in first grade, I befriended this kid in my class, and he invited me to play with him one day. And so my mom took me over to his place, and he lived in a motel. Now, I had never in my life, I had never met anybody who lived in a motel. I thought everybody lived in a house like me. No concept of that. Now, looking back on that, now I know what I know, he was in that category of being persistently 
poor. And that's why he was only in my class for a little bit of time before his family picked up and moved again. So in the same way, Joey had trouble imagining how anybody lived differently than him. He thought everybody was underfed. They were cash-strapped all the time. They were moving everywhere all the time. That's what he assumed. But when he would go to his uncle, he eventually started to see that it was different. And it gave him a vision of how his life could be different. It planted this seed in his mind that maybe the way his mom was raising him was not the right way to do this and that it could be different. And this is the first factor that is involved in whether or not somebody is able to rise above their circumstances. They have to have a vision of how their life can be different. That's the first thing you have to have. You have to have a vision of how your life can be different. And this is where I want to turn to our scripture reading from the book of Jeremiah. So in this reading, if you remember what, what Judy said, the, remember he's, how, how old is Jeremiah at this point in time in Jeremiah? He's just a little boy, right? He's just, this is chapter one, and that's the only part of his childhood we get. Now some background around this is that Jeremiah was the son of a priest. He's the son of a priest. And at this time, if you were a, if you were a boy growing up, you were going to follow what your father did. So he was expected to do what? What was he going to be? He was going to be a, he's going to be a priest. So God has other plans though. God tells Jeremiah that I want you to be one of my prophets. Now a prophet is somebody who speaks on behalf of God. And in the Presbyterian church, I've told you all this before, pastors are technically considered to be prophets because we supposedly speak on behalf of God. You can choose whether you believe that's true or not for me, but that's the concept of a prophet. So what God tells Jeremiah at a very young age is that you are going to be appointed over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and pull down and to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. This is implanted in him at a young age, this idea. And so he gets this vision when he's a child, and he grows into this vision as an adult. Had he not been given this vision, had God not planted that seed in his head, then more than likely he would have grown up, followed in the footsteps of his father, become a priest, and he would have missed his calling to be one of the most important prophets in Israel's history. Most of us in here, I have a feeling, have not had that happen to us. Anybody in here had God come to them and give them a vision of what they're supposed to be in their life? I mean, not many of us get that, right? But I do believe and I believe this strongly, that God does give us a vision of our lives indirectly through the people around us. And this is why when it comes to children, it's so very important that you realize the power you have in your hands. Because when you show a child love, you have the ability to direct their lives, to show them how it can be different. And in some instances, you can show them how it can be better. And this brings me back to Katie and Kelly and their interview. Because in this interview, there's something I couldn't include in the video. They, they talked about the first child they ever fostered. And it's really an amazing story because it talk, they talk about how by showing this child love, they're actually able to give her a different vision of what her life could be. And so we're going to watch that part right now. And, you know, with the first little girl we had, um, she, she was two and a half. And she was a big girl, and she was really strong, and she had so much anger. So she came, and she was hitting, she was swearing, and, um, and after two weeks, and so my whole thing was like, I would just, we would teach her, we don't hit, we just give hugs. 
And so after two weeks, the anger was gone and she's, she wasn't hitting anymore. She wasn't hitting and she was just giving hugs. And um, so to see the transition of a child, that like to go from an environment that was a hostile environment to go to a home where she was getting love and getting and playing with kids and being accepted and that all of that disappeared and that she was just a happy-go-lucky kid was really, really amazing. Now, I do think that's amazing. I think that's an amazing thing, right? In two weeks, in two weeks, through showing a little bit of love, they were able to turn her behavior around. And I love that mantra she has, right? We don't hit, we give hugs. I think that's great. And that's a mantra right out of Jesus' playbook, by the way. Because if we look at that second scripture reading today, right? There's this scene where the villagers are bringing their children to Jesus to have them blessed by Jesus. And the disciples, they actually are trying to prevent the kids. They're like, keep these kids away. They don't need to be around Jesus. And he says, let the little children come to me, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Now, this particular way of saying this. This is something really fascinating because he's basically saying that the most important members of God's kingdom are children. Now, why does he say that they're children? Because everything in God's kingdom is upside down. It's upside down. So, you remember, what does he say? Or the the first are what? Last. And the last are first. Right? The rich are poor and the poor are rich. The weak are strong and the strong are weak. And since children are the weakest and most vulnerable members of our society, Jesus makes it very clear that we as Christians have a responsibility to protect children from harm. And I think one of the reasons why he approaches children in this way, which is really beautiful in my opinion, the way he approaches it, is because of his own experiences as a child. If you've ever taken the time to read the Bible and you've read it in any detail, you know that we don't know very much about Jesus' childhood. But what we do know, or what we can glean, comes from context clues in the scriptures. Now, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, which is the first gospel written about Jesus' life, there's an interesting clue about what his life might have been like. So, what you see is that in Mark's gospel, they refer to Jesus as the Son of Mary. The Son of Mary. Now, normally in Judaism, you refer to somebody by their father's name. So technically, he should be Jesus, son of Joseph. But in first century Judaism, you would refer to somebody by their mother's name if they were born out of wedlock. Now, this is very important. It's an important little thing to note, right? It's small, but it makes a big difference. So by saying it's Jesus, son of Mary... You are, they are indicating to us that he was an illegitimate child. And this would have been a mark that would have followed him throughout his entire childhood, into his adulthood. So, I think that more than likely, Jesus' childhood was comprised of a lot of rejection. And this would have been due to the adults around him, looking at this, knowing this about him, and deriding him. And the children, they would have picked up on this derision. They would have actually seen it, and they would have started to exclude him from social activities. As a result of how he was born, he wouldn't have had access to good education, he wouldn't have had access to good employment, and he certainly wouldn't have had good access to good marriages. No father in his right mind would marry off his daughter to an illegitimate child. You're not going to do that. In, in, the, in the Gospels, is Jesus married? 
No. And one of the reasons why he's not married is because he wouldn't have had access to that. And so as a result of all of this, I really see it as Jesus' childhood was probably pretty rough, like just generally speaking at, at that time. Life was pretty rough back then anyway, but his was particularly hard. And it's the result of these adults who stripped him of his innocence. And I think that what he experienced as a child really influenced his in teachings as an adult. Because he tells us that adults have a lot of power over children. He makes that very clear. And that it is incumbent upon us to make sure that we are serving our children, that we are protecting them from, their, from, from being in a situation where they are unable to overcome. And so when I look at this and I see what he's talking about, he's saying, you know, you can impact a child in a negative way and you can impact a child in a positive way. And if you use it for positivity, if you can turn it around, I mean, you can rescue the potential of a child if a child is in need, right? And not just physically by providing for them with a roof and clothes and food. You can rescue their potential by allowing them to have the potential to be intellectually strong, about having them the potential to be spiritually strong. I mean, these are ways that you can help them to be different than they are. And so this is the second factor in my mind that is so important when it comes to somebody rising above their circumstances is that you have to see a path. There has to be some type of path that you can walk down to achieve this vision of how your lives can be different. The first step is, yes, you do have to have that vision, but if you don't know how to get there, there's no way to achieve it. So those two things are so very, very important for us. And Katie, her little mantra, like the mantra that she says, we don't hit, we give hugs, that is a perfect example of how you can sit there and give a vision of how your life can be different and provide a path for how to get there. So we as adults, we have an opportunity with children... <laughs> to not just be an example to them of how they can live their lives differently. We also are the guides to help them get there. And so for me, I want you to understand that I really think that if we turn a blind eye to children who are in need, that's a really horrible thing for us to do. Because so often when we see a kid who's in need, what do you think to yourself? You think, eh, not my kid, not my problem, right? I mean, that's how we think of it, isn't it? But when we do that, we ignore our Christian duty to children, and we're really rolling the dice. I mean, we are. We're rolling the dice, hoping that it all works out. But what Jesus wants us to do and what his teachings tell us, which is so very clear, is that you have to rise to the occasion. You are the one who can help a child reach their potential and not have that potential be squandered. And children have so much potential from Jesus' perspective, and therefore it is our duty as Christians to make sure that they have the right foundation so that they can reach that potential. And this is a lot easier than you might think. We have a number of teachers in here who work with kids all the time, and they are on the front lines of what it means to serve these children. But you don't have to be a teacher in a classroom to be able to make a difference in people's lives. Let's just take our congregation, what we have right in here. If every single person in here was willing to take an interest to invest in one child outside of their family, one child who came from different circumstances than what they know. Think about the difference that that could make. If everybody in here just invested in one child outside of their own families, 
It can make a huge difference. So even if you sat there and you were watching what Katie and Kelly were talking about and you're like, I could never do what they do with Lydia Ohm. And that's a hard thing. Like, don't get me wrong. It's a hard thing, what they do. But you can do all kinds of stuff with Lydia Home, by the way. They need people to drive. Like, not everybody who works for them just does the, the fostering. They need people to drive from the agency to the foster home. They need people to provide meals. They need people to throw birthday parties for these kids. They need people to help manage their property and just do the gardening and mow the lawn. Like, they need people to do that. So you don't just have to foster kids. But even if you don't want to do anything with some, a place like Lydia Home, even if you're like, no, that's not for me, you can still make an impact on a child's life, and you can do it right here in this church. So each week, every Wednesday night, we have family night here. And if you've never been to family night, the one thing that you'll notice about family night is that there are just tons of kids running around everywhere. And you never know, I mean, you truly, you never know how you might connect with one of those kids. You never know how by talking to them, you could give them a vision of how their lives could be different. You never know how you could have this positive impact on them if you're just willing to put yourself out there. And so I hope that you'll take away what Katie and Kelly said, which is that your love truly can make such a difference in the world, but you have to be willing to take a chance and to allow that love out there so that it can make that difference. So my prayer for you this morning is that you might have a new vision for your life, that you might be willing to invest in a child and not just be an example of how their lives can be different, but that you might be the guide to help them get there so that we can live into our responsibility to serve the little ones. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.